0: Saul may be dead. His son Ishbosheth may be dead. He may have been anointed by Samuel to be Israel's next king, but David is still king in waiting. Until all threats from Saul's dynasty have been eradicated, he cannot be sure that the nation will accept him as leader. If he wants to take his place as Israel's unopposed king, the time for the giant killing shepherd from Bethlehem to move is now. My name is Chaz Bayfield, and this is Holy Biable Episode 70 The Crippled Child. Oh my days, episode 70. I would say episode 70 already, but it does seem like a pretty long time since I started this podcast we put out one episode every week for 70 weeks, as well as a couple of specials, but I can't thank you enough for listening, even if this is your very first time here. I'd love to know what you think, so please do leave a review. And if you prefer reading to listening, why not pop over to Amazon and grab Snakes and Angels, a secular walk through the first five books of the Bible, but not before you've stuck around to hear this week's offering. We're in the heat of the action as David begins his concerted attempt to seize the crown of Israel for himself in a genuine game of thrones. My apologies to the ultra-religious, this is not a Bible study nor a devotional. My belief is that the Bible is for everyone and this is more a religion-free tour for day-trippers. The Bible light, if you will. Episode 70, let's do this. With Ishbosheth no longer waiting in the wings, it's time for David to step up to the throne as sole king of Israel. Representatives from every tribe assemble for a leadership summit in Hebron and agree that it was David who was responsible for Israel's military victories when Saul was king. The leaders also share their belief that God has chosen David to shepherd them. David makes a solemn promise to rule Israel after which the nation's tribal leaders pour sacred oil on his head, confirming him as their chosen king. As coronations go, it's a relatively humble one and sets the pace for the long and generally well-considered rule of Israel's second king. Now that he is finally in charge, David sets his sights on a more impressive city than Hebron from which he can rule Israel. The location that ticks all the boxes is the mountain stronghold of Jebus on the border of Judah and Benjamin. This small but well-defended outpost is still populated by a Canaanite tribe called the Jebusites and the locals seem overly self-confident in the impregnability of their home. Possibly buoyed that they have survived this long into the conquest, they laugh at any attempt to invade them. The locals claim that any attack on their city is so easy to fend off that the blind and the lame can be put in charge of Jebus' defences. It's all just words, and David has no problem overpowering Jebus' defenders and capturing Zion, one of the hills on which the city is built. The Jebusite's arrogance has been their downfall. Rather than risk a conventional attack, the king's audacious move is to creep along a water shaft that feeds the city, then take the place by surprise. Using the former inhabitants taunt against them, David announces that all it took to put the lame and blind defenders of Jebus to the test was to shimmy up their borehole. With the mission a success, the newly conquered stronghold is renamed the City of David. Salem, Jebus, Zion, the city of God, Israel's new capital remains one of the world's most sacred sites and is by far the Bible's most dominant city. Built around the existing fortress of Jebus, it soon becomes David's stronghold, taking on the name Jerusalem. The Salem in the city's name comes from the same root as the Hebrew word Shalom, meaning peace. David uses terracing to expand the existing city down the hillside, and readers are told that he is a more powerful king because he has God's blessing. Hiram, king of the city of Tyre on the Mediterranean coast to the north of Israel, immediately pronounces himself an ally who recognises David's kingship. He sends David supplies of cedar wood as well as carpenters and stonemasons to build his palace, a canny act of generosity that secures peace with a more powerful neighbour. David sees this international recognition as further confirmation that God wants him to be Israel's king and sets about accumulating wives, concubines, and children. Until relatively recently, historians believed that David's reign might have been mythical. This was until the discovery in 1993 of an inscription at Tel Dan in northern Israel which mentions the House of David. Bible fans get hugely excited when the people within the book's pages tally with actual historical characters. Those atheists who suggest that the entirety of the Bible is a work of fiction do other atheists a disservice. Not believing in God or gods is one thing, but denying the historical record is a bold move. They no doubt would say that most religious people don't care two hoots for the historical record, and so it goes on, and probably will go on, until either Judgment Day, the Earth is wiped out by an asteroid, or the sun goes out, depending on what angle you take on this. No sooner has David become king than the opportunistic Philistines launch an attack, possibly to test any cracks in his reign. The full force of the enemy army gathers in a valley a few miles southwest of Jerusalem. As ever before a major decision, David needs to be sure that God is on his side. Whatever the ceremony or ritual is that divines the mind of God, Israel's king is convinced that his army will defeat their enemy. Sure enough, the Philistines are repelled but they are not defeated and return to the battlefield. This time, David believes that God is telling him to circle round behind the enemy army. When his men hear the sound of marching in the top of the nearby poplar trees, they see it as a sign that God is ahead of them and that victory is certain. Some believe that the sound they hear will have been the wind rustling the leaves which sounds like soldiers feet, making it seem like they have more troops than they actually do. The attack is a success, and the Philistines are pushed out of Israel's central highlands and back towards the coast. Now that his most powerful enemy is no longer a threat, David turns his attention to the Ark of the Covenant. After its eventful sojourn with the Philistines, the Israelites' most sacred artefact remains on an obscure farm in Judah, and has yet to be given a permanent home. With his new capital established in Jerusalem, David believes that the time has come to rehouse the Ark. This is by no means a simple matter of logistics. The king sets out with an army of 30,000 men and arrives at the home of a man called Abinadab, at whose home the Ark is being kept. They load the precious cargo onto a brand-new ox cart and David leads the procession down the hill from Abinadab's farm, accompanied by musicians playing celebratory music on multiple instruments. The farmland underfoot is possibly uneven and one of the oxen stumbles, nearly dislodging the ark. Abinadab's son Uzzah is walking alongside the cart with his brother and, instinctively, he reaches out to stop the wooden chest from falling. Immediately he is struck dead, killing the Vibe completely. Only priests are allowed to touch this holiest of boxes, and only then by using poles pushed through specially fabricated gold loops at each corner. The suggestion is that God is furious that a mere mortal has desecrated something so sacred. The injustice affects David, who is angry that God needed to kill Uzzah, but it also spooks him. If this is how God reacts to someone helping to prevent damage to the Ark, how can he ever bring it safely into Jerusalem? Not wanting to risk any more death, he leaves the Holy Casket for three months with a man called Obed-Edom. Obed-Edom is possibly a Philistine who is living in Israel, as few Israelites would want to go near the Ark after what happened to Uzzah. Far from suffering any ill effects, Obed-Edom and his family thrive while the ark is in their possession, and David sees this as a green light to continue the journey to Jerusalem. Not wanting to take any chances, the king stops after the ark has been moved just six steps, and sacrifices a bull and a calf. The cavalcade then continues on to Jerusalem, and David is so elated that God is finally arriving in his city that he personally leads the procession. Wearing only a priest's linen undergarment, he dances without inhibition, while the others shout and blast trumpets. When they reach Jerusalem, David dances through the streets until the ark arrives in a tent that he has set up especially for it. The king then offers sacrifices, tells everyone that God has blessed them, then hands out cake to everyone who has come to watch. David's wife Michal now re-enters the story and is mortified that her husband has been making such a fool of himself. The book goes as far as to say that she despises him. Michal lets David know exactly what she thinks of him cavorting half-naked in full view of their servant girls, but David is unashamed. He is dancing for God who chose him to be king of Israel instead of Saul. If it means celebrating what God has done, then he is prepared to be even more undignified than he has already been. It may appear humiliating, but David is confident that the slave girls will see God in this moment of pure joy, and that they will honour him. Readers are told that, unlike David's fertile wives and concubines, Michal never has any children a sign that God is judging her for her complete failure to read the room. Unlike Saul, David seems very keen to know what God thinks of him and his rule. And unlike Saul, who seeks the divinations of a medium, David consults a prophet. He summons a holy man called Nathan, to whom he confesses that living in a palace while the ark remains under canvas doesn't sit right with him. Nathan is confident that God has the king's back and sends him off to do as he pleases, but that night the prophet has a dream that causes him to advise a change of plan. Nathan hears God tell him that he has never had a permanent building, that the Israelites have always brought the tabernacle with them, and that he has never asked any of their rulers for a lasting residence. Nathan is to tell David that God took him from being a shepherd and made him ruler of Israel. He has remained with him wherever he has travelled. He has helped him defeat all comers and will make him one of the greatest people ever to live. The message is that God will provide a safe home for his people. He will protect them from attacks from their enemies and the nation will have a rest from war. According to the words which Nathan hears, God promises to establish David's dynasty. When he dies, the king's heir will rule successfully too, building a home for God and presiding over an eternal kingdom. A concept which Christians see as a clear nod to Jesus, who they believe is a direct descendant of David and whose reign, they claim, will last forever. This is the first time since Hannah's prayer at the Shiloh Sanctuary that a Messiah has been mentioned. And the suggestion is that, with David established as king, God's plan for this can come into action. If you missed the podcast about Hannah go back to episode 62 the fat and the fallen. David's son who may or may not be Solomon or Jesus will have God as his father Nathan is told. He will be disciplined like any other man but God's love will never be taken away from him as it was with Saul. When Nathan shares with David that he believes his kingdom will last forever, the king enters the tabernacle and praises God, marvelling that he has chosen someone so ordinary to rule Israel and better still to allow a mere human, a dynasty that will never end. David describes himself as God's servant. There is no one like God, he says, and nowhere like Israel. A nation which God rescued from Egypt, miraculously driving out all other nations to give his own people supremacy. God has established Israel, David tells him, and he is their God. David urges God to keep his promises so that God's name will remain famous forever. That way, all people will know that Israel has a powerful deity who will help David establish his dynasty. It is enormously encouraging for David to hear that God has his back enough to want his family to be Israel's kings forever, which is why he feels bold enough to pray. To David, God is trustworthy, his promises are kept, and he asks for his continued blessing on his family. After a horrendous period of decline and fall in Israel, it finally looks like things are turning around. The nation has a godly ruler more in the vein of a judge than a king. Its enemies are subdued, it has a new capital city and can finally thrive in a way that David believes God always intended it to. Now that he is king, national security is paramount and David wastes no time in subduing enemy nations. The Philistines have ceased to be a threat to Israel, and David now turns his attention to other troublesome Canaanite kingdoms. He subdues the Moabites by forcing the army to lie down in a line, then measuring this line with a length of cord. The men contained in every two lengths are killed, reducing the Moabite army by two-thirds. David also demands an ongoing payment known as a tribute that keeps money flowing into Israel. Why David extracts such savage revenge on Moab, a country that had recently sheltered his family, is one of the Bible's many mysteries. A Jewish tradition suggests that the Moabites murdered David's parents and that the executions are revenge for this. This is unlikely given that, in the Psalms, David repeatedly begs God to avenge him and never once suggests taking matters into his own hands. Israel's new king confiscates 1,000 chariots, 7,000 charioteers and 20,000 soldiers from the kingdom of Zobah in modern-day Syria, hamstringing all but 100 of their horses. When the Arameans from Damascus come to help out their friends from Zobah, David kills 22,000 of them, slaps a garrison in Damascus and forces the Arameans to pay him a tribute too. David brings the gold shields confiscated from Zobah's officers back to Jerusalem, as well as a large quantity of bronze, which he puts aside for God, most likely to adorn the temple, which he assumes one of his sons will later build. Tau, a saviour king from the city of Hamath, 130 miles north of Damascus, congratulates David on his victory against Zobah and brings him treasure, which is stored with the rest for later use. Finally, David wipes out an 18,000 strong fighting force from Edom and places garrisons throughout its territory. Like a latter-day Joshua, every battle Israel's king fights, he wins. As the book tells its readers, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David keeps his nephew Joab as his military commander while Abiathar's son Abimelech is joined by Zadok as Israel's priest. David's sons are also described as priests, but which ones perform this role, readers are not told. A man named Jehoshaphat is made a key advisor, while Seriah is described as secretary, which is a senior legal advisor. Benaiah is put in charge of the most trusted divisions in David's army, the Kerathites and Pelathites, who between them are believed to have formed a royal bodyguard. Once victory against his hostile neighbours is in the bag, David's next move is an act of kindness to a good friend. Content that all is secure in the nation, David now asks if there is anyone left from Saul's dynasty who he can help as a kindness to his former ally and closest friend, Saul's son, Jonathan. Ziba A former servant of Saul is hauled in front of the king where he informs David about Jonathan's disabled son. Mephibosheth was only five years old when news arrived that his father Jonathan and grandfather Saul had died in battle. In a panic to leave Saul's house, the child's nurse dropped him, crippling him. The young man is brought from his home midway between Jerusalem and Jericho and bows down before David. Mephibosheth is evidently terrified. He knows that when one dynasty succeeds another, the custom is to kill all male heirs belonging to the previous king. He is probably amazed that he has survived this long, but David puts his mind at rest. He has nothing to fear, the king tells him, and he will be given back all the personal land which his grandfather Saul once owned. Not only this, David insists that Jonathan's son must always eat at his table. Mephibosheth is bewildered as to why he is being shown such kindness. In his own eyes, he is a dead dog. David doesn't care about his disability. He tells Zeba that Mephibosheth now owns everything that once belonged to Saul and that Zeba's family is to farm the land for Mephibosheth so that he has an income. From now on, the young man lives in the royal palace with David and his family, while Zeba sets his 15 sons and 20 servants to work on his estate. Even though he was Saul's servant, for Zeba to amass the wealth to provide for 15 children and 20 servants does suggest a high level of shrewdness. More on that in a future episode. Israel may have a king, but it is an uneasy peace. There are those in the country who feel that they or others might lead their nation better. Israel's neighbours too are restless. David needs to demonstrate his authority both at home and abroad. Doing this will show that God has not only chosen him but is fully behind him. However, one lax moment puts the entire nation in jeopardy a woman named Bathsheba is about to step onto her flat roof in full view of David, remove her clothing and begin washing herself. Whether or not she knows that the king can see her, both of their worlds are about to come crashing down. The Bible is written and produced by Chas Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. You can follow us on Twitter or Facebook, just search Holy Bible Podcast. And if you like reading as much as you do listening, why not download Snakes and Angels, a secular walk through the first five books of the Bible, from Amazon. And lastly, you might enjoy Not In The Book, a special podcast where I expose a number of stories, characters and ideas believed by many to be in the Bible, but which aren't. Does God only help those who help themselves? Will he never give believers more than they can handle? And why do so many eyebrows raise about Mary Magdalene? That's Not In The Book, a holy Bible special, available now. See you next time.